Today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 13 and 14. Can be found on page 962, the few Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. The word of the Lord. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory fill the earth. I'm giving honor to God the Father and to God the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And also to God the Holy Spirit, as Amy said earlier, in whom we live and move and have our being. And to Pastor Gerald, with thanksgiving for inviting me to share the ministry of preaching with him. And to the elders who labor with him in leading us. And with love toward every one of you. Good morning and buenos dias. <laughs> I give thanks for another day to serve the Lord with gladness. The Lord has been good and kind to every one of us. Now for <clears throat> those of you who are familiar with how Sundays go at Calvary Memorial, you are aware that if Pastor Gerald were speaking, this would be the time before the sermon in which he would tell us that today there will be an introduction, four ideas, two points of application, two ditches to avoid, a ninth principle, and quotes from Irenaeus Augustine, a little known desert theologian, and maybe C.S. Lewis also. <laughs> now, I'm not going to do that. However, I do need to explain that I have to step away from the current series in 2 Corinthians in consultation with our pastor. We are coming upon a section in 2 Corinthians that some see as a digression to the argument or maybe even a seam in the book. It marks a significant turn in 2 Corinthians, the sort of turn that needs to be addressed by the senior pastor as it sets up the rest of the book through the end and thus all of the corresponding sermons to the end. So Pastor Gerald suggested that in my deviation, I should consider an earlier thought in 1 or 2 Corinthians and just tie it into the series. That is why we are in 1 Corinthians 16 today. Just wanted you to know that because we do know that we're in 2 Corinthians. Is that okay? Good. I'm glad that's okay. <laughs> so let us pray. Father, thank you for being our great God and King. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saying, not my will be done, but your will be done. God, would you now work in such a way that the name of Christ would be magnified among 
the nations in Ethiopia and Somalia, in Ukraine, Russia, and other parts of the world, here all over Chicagoland, here in Oak Park. Would you exalt the name of Christ so that people see that he lives and that he saves? Bless now that your power could be upon the preaching and upon the hearing. Thank you for letting us sing to you and cry out to you. Be with us now to bless us. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met with Chinese Premier Li Chang to defend recent American actions to protect our national security. In her meeting, the Secretary's statements to the Premier included these words. The United States will, in certain circumstances, need to pursue targeted actions to protect its national security. And we may disagree in these instances. Within her remarks to the Premier, she added, we should not allow any disagreement to lead to misunderstandings that needlessly worsen our bilateral economic and financial relationship. The Secretary's remarks were very carefully crafted to keep China coming to the table to talk about economies while also yielding no ground on the U.S.'s policies toward protecting U.S. businesses. The history of how the church has engaged the cultures in which it has found herself has not necessarily been as successful at being both winsome and unyielding in our messages. We have tottered between approaches like all-out crusades or monasticism and getting Christian candidates to take over political offices versus an Anabaptist approach that largely avoids political and militaristic involvements. For Calvary Memorial, the last decade and a half has witnessed us pull back on a philosophy that made the local community forcefully opposed to our message. This philosophical change is most recently reflected on our summer events calendar. We are going to join our neighbors in village events this summer. Still, many of us would admit that we readily could use more guidance and help in being faithful in our dealings with people outside of the church. We need a manner of engagement that does not compromise on our message while being winsome enough to leave lines open for continued conversation. Today, we want to focus on facing the culture in the strength of Christ, as the title says. But I really want to talk about love. The title does not seem to indicate such, but love is part of the focus of this passage. I will be discussing love as the only means to address 
Every opposing force, hostile challenge, skeptical inquiry, and deconstructed dismissal toward what we believe as followers of Jesus. The passage is speaking of love as the response to the older intellectual friend who sees Christianity as a crutch for weak people or as an intellectually inferior proposal to her or his naturalism. These verses call for love as the means of speaking to neighbors who continue to view this church, and thus all of us, as pariahs to this community. This passage posits love as the means for withstanding intentional attacks you face personally or your extracurricular Christian group on campus faces. This passage is in Corinthians so that all might see that Christianity is a better alternative to self-made spirituality and or to being one of those who is determined to live your life without a hint of organized religion. Love when rightly defined and understood, is the most powerful force to face the culture in the strength of Christ. In fact, effectively, love is the strength of Christ. So let's look at love. Paul says, let all that you do be done in love, in verse 14. By saying all, Paul takes every bit of life into consideration, all the Christian life into consideration. Love is the currency of Christian living. There is not one thing that we do as believers that should not flow from head toward and be permeated through and through with love. Let all you do, says Paul. This is consistent with the idea of love running through the rest of Paul's writings and the rest of the New Testament. The concept of love Paul has in these verses is the same as the concept in the great commandment and the second greatest commandment. Jesus says of the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment that all of the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets is about loving God with all of one's mind, heart, soul, and strength, and loving one's neighbor as oneself. The point of everything that we read from Genesis to Malachi is to transform us into people who exercise more love toward God in every aspect of our beings every day and more love for our neighbor in every aspect of our dealings with them every day. Your devotions in Psalms are about loving God and neighbor more. Your Bible study through the minor prophets is about loving God and neighbor increasingly. Every sermon expounding verses from the Old Testament is about maturing in love toward God and toward everyone within our spheres of friendship and influence. 
This is why the African church father, Augustine, could say, whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand Scripture as he ought. For Augustine, if our reading of Scripture does not result in more love for God and of neighbor, we are not reading Scripture with understanding. I was challenged greatly last week when Pastor Gerald spoke of affirming our children, their need for them to hear from their parents that we are proud of them and that their own belief in themselves is affected by their perception of our belief in them. What Pastor Gerald was really saying is that our love for our children in the form of affirmation helps to propel our children toward all the Lord intends for them to be, do, and have. We are not affirming their foolishness, sin, or even their good works. We are affirming them. So I was able to be intentional in affirming four of our five adult children with whom I spoke this week, including one toward whom I have not affirmed much in recent years. I took my eyes off the works of the child, as Pastor Gerald told us to do, and I put my eyes on the child so I could affirm that one who has been hard for me to affirm and for me to meet a practical need of that child this week. Thank you, Pastor Gerald, for letting the Lord use you in that way. How could our shepherd call us to do this? Because all of what the Corinthians were called to do and all of what Paul did, all of what we are to do is framed by love. When Paul instructs us to be ambassadors who implore others to be reconciled to God, Pastor Gerald can call us to be in this golden chain of reconciliation because that is part of how we love people in the world. And when Paul guides the Corinthians away from the need for letters of credentials and away from appearances of perfection that were promoted by the super apostles, Paul is doing so because this is what love would do. As said, Paul's idea of love is consistent with Jesus' idea of love. We already considered that Jesus spoke of loving God and of loving one's neighbor. Jesus also says that we are to love our enemies, people who hate us because we follow Jesus, people who are out to get us because they wish to do away with a world that needs Jesus. People who stand against us because they stand against the countercultural demands of following Jesus. In John 13 and 15, Jesus further told the disciples to love one another as he had loved them. Jesus will suffer rejection, 
desertion by friends, false accusation, abuse, criminalization, and death on the cross for the disciples and for us. Jesus will lay down his life as the greatest act of love for his friends, including us. Every love one another statement in the New Testament letters flows directly from Jesus saying to his followers, love one another as I have loved you. So the concept of love that must permeate everything we do is one, a love for God with everything in our being. Two, I love for our neighbors the way we love our individual selves. Three, a love modeled by Jesus' truth-telling, meek and lowly, suffering and sacrifice on the cross. Four, a love for all other disciples for whom Jesus died. And five, that same love directed toward forces who mean us harm rather than good. That is a tall order. I think the term that covers this comprehensive idea of love is cherish. Paul uses the term cherish in Ephesians 5 when speaking of how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves us, as Christ loves the church. The love that we have for our own health, our own well-being, that takes us to the gym, that makes us eat right and take vitamin supplements, that makes us look out for our very lives is to cherish ourselves to hold ourselves in the highest regard and deepest affection with the resulting appropriate priority of care. This is what Christian husbands are called to do toward their wives. Cherish also would cover ideas within the personification of love in 1 Corinthians 13, that very familiar passage we use at weddings. That is... We will be patient with those whom we cherish. We will not be rude or arrogant toward those we cherish. We will bear all things, be hopeful in all situations, and endure the worst kind of stuff for those we cherish. Now, naturally, we all know how to feel and perform the various facets of love. In every society, one can find sentimentality and affection. The world is replete with acts of self-sacrifice, selflessness, kindness, compassion, and goodness. But where do we find in the world someone who is consistently sentimental, appropriately affectionate, altruistic, self-sacrificing, selfless, kind, and good toward friend and foe, and every fellow believer, while holding God in the highest regard, with the deepest affection for God, and with the appropriate priority of concern for the things of God. That is the difference that Christ makes in all of us. That is the difference that the gospel makes in every one of us. I have been studying 
much on sociopathy and narcissistic disorders recently because I have been encountering such personalities much more frequently than I did in my younger years of life. I don't know what has made me this sort of, hi, I'm a narcissist magnet, or a hi, I'm a sociopath, I'm glad to meet you, Eric, magnet recently, but anyway. One thing I'm learning about narcissists is that they have an extremely difficult time admitting wrong. They love to flip our assessments of their wrongdoings back on us, not with gaslighting per se, but by focusing on how our talk of their wrongdoing is harming them or making them feel unsafe. I'm sorry, I didn't say that in the most loving way. Please forgive me. I just, sorry. When people outside of Christ get to know us, they should meet people who are concerned foremost that we are treating people the way that Jesus treats us, not people concerned about how others are mistreating us. When people encounter us, they should meet people willing to admit fault, who do not retaliate by pointing out the equal wrongs of another, and who are willing to consider the opinions of others. These are the sorts of loving stances that honor Christ, that love Christ. These are the sort of stances that give credibility to the power of Christ, of the gospel working in each one of us to conform and shape us into the very image of Jesus, stances that show love for our neighbor. So why is this significant for us today? We are considering the entirety of 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, in which I have said that this is about facing the culture in the strength of Christ. There are four commands in verse 13. Be watchful, stand strong in the faith, act like men, be strong, or stand firm in the faith, excuse me. The commands are not unrelated as some commentaries have proposed. Instead, each of the four commandments is a stand against opposition. As New Testament scholars Roy Siampa and Brian Rosner recognize, the first four of Paul's five exhortations in a row all reflect the kind of things a general might say to his troops before they enter into battle. Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. But as Siampa and Rosner recognize, a general might say this, but he would not add in the faith after stand firm. Also, it is that little phrase in the faith that makes the opposition concrete. The watchfulness, standing firm, acting like men, and being strong are toward things that would come against the Christian faith, against our faith. They are cultural challenges to steer us away from our faith. These things can sneak up or be subtle, so we need to be watchful. These things can tempt us to doubt and deny what we believe, so we must be firm. 
They can be fearful or threatening, so we must act like men, which I will explain in a minute. Things that come against us will be perpetual, so we must be strong and be ready to endure rather than cave. And we must be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong in the strength and by means of love. Let all you do be done in love, the second of the verses says. So allow me briefly to flesh out these four commands. First, we should be discerning with and through love. We should be discerning with and through love. Like the Corinthians, we should be concerned about subtle or masked attacks to tempt us away from our faith. But love should keep that from translating into mislabeling fellow brothers and sisters with derogatory epithets because something they have said sounds a little off. Love, instead, goes over and has direct conversations with coffee and gives fellow believers the benefit of the doubt. Here's what you need to say to arrange one of those coffees. Hey, I heard you say some things recently I want to ask more about privately. Do you think we could grab coffee together? See how easy that was? That's all you have to do to, to someone. Then go ask that person privately to clarify what he or she meant. The let's go get coffee or a meal together approach is loving, unlike blasting persons in social media. Second, we should hold our faith convictions with and through love. Everything we say and believe in our recitations of the apostolic and Nicene creeds and our baptism catechism is reflective of the truth we believe in Christ. We must hold on to everything between one God, our Father, maker of heaven and earth, and the life everlasting, amen. We must hold on to everything in between those bookends, for to deny such is to deny the historic expressions of the necessary items for us to have the faith that we see in the scriptures. So we cannot let go of any one of those items any more than Secretary Yellen could budge on U.S. national security. And yet... We must be gracious when people differ from us on other things. As believers, we should not be given over to arguments, conspiracy theories, and divisions. The world has the power to do that without Jesus. Standing firm on our core beliefs should be reflected also in our life choices. Our faith is theological regarding the life of the mind. But our faith is also practical, touching our emotions, our souls, our bodies, and all of our activities. What steers people away from the faith often is pedestrian rather than propositional. Stuff like, mom died when you needed her and God didn't save her. 
Your health is not getting any better, no matter how much you and others pray. Your marriage failed even though your spouse was supposed to be Christian, or the church you previously attended was hypocritical or harmful. Disillusionment, disappointment, and despondency are always at our door to tempt us to deny that the Christian life actually works, that it is actually possible to do, and that it offers deep peace and joy. We must stand firm against those temptations. And we must stand firm knowing that one Jesus never promised perfection, vindication, or absence of pain in this life. I really wish he did. I really wish he had. I mean that. I wish I could take away the pain so many of my friends are experiencing right now. I wish I could cast them into some sort of sea of forgetfulness to delete, erase them, make them be gone. Even though I know from personal experience that such pains can drive us toward Jesus and more love to him. Jesus never promised perfection, vindication, or an absence of pain. And two, God is not failing us even though people are. Because God is faithful and God is good. Paul, Jesus, Joseph, the Apostle John, scores and scores of saints all throughout history would agree. Nevertheless, the culture around us will give us every reason to abandon the faith when we are struggling with the routine affairs of this life. The potential for temptations from disillusionment and disappointment means some of us need to take our studies of the beliefs of our faith to another level of depth so we can be prepared to answer the most challenging questions to our faith that will be coming to us. Others of us need more faithfulness in fellowship among maturing believers so we can hear the stories of the power of God working in others the way we are praying that God will work in our very own lives. Third, we should be courageous with and through love. That quirky phrase there, act like men, seems very politically incorrect on the surface. Even weirder are the various translations of the Greek terms, quit you like men, if you're holding a King James Version, or be brave if you are holding the new King James Version. The translations that have something like be courageous have actually captured the idea behind the idiom. To act like men reflected a Roman way of speaking of Rome's, one of Rome's first century values. Similar is reflected in the now archaic phrase, man up. And we're very familiar with that. The term in our text doesn't mean that women are not courageous. For Paul calls all of the Corinthian believers to this term without demanding gender conformity to maleness to accomplish what he is saying. 
The term also does not suggest that all men are courageous, for we all know stories of men who ran the other way in the face of potential death. Act like men is a term of ideal value, excuse me, rooted in an ancient concept of courage. Even so, Paul is saying, be courageous by means and through love. Our goal within culture is not to conquer, but to invite. It is not to prove we are correct, but to persuade others with gentleness and offer our message with joy, but without budging on the message. The gospel has the power to save all by itself. We don't need to budge, and we don't need to be afraid. Jesus will take care of the saving. Being courageous is in low quantities in many societies right now. It is much easier to cancel, to unfollow, to unfriend, or to bystand when someone is being attacked so that the attacker does not turn on us. Therefore, when we are watching the news, it is most commendable when someone pulls a person from a car that is burning in flames at the risk of the person's own life. But most of us never face something that dramatic. Instead, many of us are facing choices like standing up for a coworker being bullied or mistreated, push, getting pushback from relatives on our parenting or our dating choices because they are morally different from the rest of the family's choices, confronting an adult sibling foolishly throwing away a life in substance abuse, gambling, absenteeism from the home, or taking advantage of our older parents. We are in arenas where it is easier to hide our beliefs when there is opportunity to deposit them in conversations because depositing them will get us labeled. We know the last person who exercised moral courage was blackballed, dismissed, or pushed out of circles of advancement and acceptance. Paul is not asking us to bungee jump or to skydive. He is asking us not to compromise on what we believe or our beliefs implications for living cross or counterculturally in holiness. Courage is a virtue that flows from the death and resurrection of Jesus. The one who faced the wrath of God for us is the most courageous person who ever walked the face of the earth. It took courage to look in the face of all the sins of you and I and say, yes, put that on my back. I will bear all of that for them. And it took courage to look at a holy and just God and know that he is going to pour out justice of his wrath on sin and say, yes, I will take that for them. Our faith is not a faith of cowards, no matter what the world tries to tell us. It's not for people who need crutches. It is a faith of people who are fueled by our God to be as courageous as Jesus.
Fourth, we endure through and with love. The great temptation when challenges are prolonged is to turn on the ones who love us the most. That is easier than facing the real enemies again and being hurt by them. So while we are enduring, be strong is Paul's last command. We cannot turn on the ones who love us with all of our pent-up disappointment, anger, frustration, and unfulfilled cries for justice. But we also shouldn't stuff our feelings. We should talk to a mature believer or a professional. Love is what makes us say we will strive to endure when the tough stuff just doesn't seem to go away. The culture will tell us to cave or to throw in the towel. Love tells us to hang in there because we can rest on Jesus. Father, we thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ. We wish there was a B path to the Christian life that was absent of trouble and absent of opposition, poking at and trying to destroy all that we hold dear and believe. But in this fallen world, this is the path to glory. And so we look to you to give us the courage of Christ, to bless us to stand firm in the faith, to cause us to be watchful, to make us strong, so that the nations can hear about the mercy of Jesus. Strengthen we, your people, on this day and be gracious and kind to us. Thank you that we serve a courageous Savior. In his name we pray, amen.